0: Chapter Four of the Talisman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Talisman by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Four Kenneth the Scot was uncertain how long his senses had been lost in profound repose when he was roused to recollection by a sense of oppression on his chest which at first suggested a flirting dream of struggling with a powerful opponent and at length recalled him fully to his senses he was about to demand who was there when opening his eyes he beheld the figure of the anchorite wild and savage looking as we have described him standing by his bedside and pressing his right hand upon his breast "'while he held a small silver lamp in the other. "'Be silent,' said the hermit, "'as the prostrate knight looked up in surprise. "'I have that to say to you which yonder infidel must not hear." "'These words he spoke in the French language, "'and not in the lingua franca, "'or compound of Eastern and European dialects, "'which had hitherto been used amongst them. "'Arise,' he continued, Put on thy mantle, speak not, but tread lightly and follow me. Sir Kenneth arose and took his sword. It needs not, answered the anchorite in a whisper. We are going where spiritual arms avail much, and fleshly weapons are but as the reed and the decayed gourd. The knight deposited his sword by the bedside as before, and armed only with his dagger, from which in this perilous country he never parted prepared to attend his mysterious host the hermit then moved slowly forwards and was followed by the knight still under some uncertainty whether the dark form which glided on before to show him the path was not in fact the creation of a disturbed dream they passed like shadows into the outer apartment without disturbing the pine who lay still buried in repose before the cross and altar in the outward room a lamp was still burning a missile was displayed and on the floor lay a discipline or penitential scourge of small cord and wire the lashes of which were recently stained with blood a token no doubt of the severe penance of the recluse here theodoric kneeled down and pointed to the knight to take his place beside him upon the sharp flints which seemed place for the purpose of rendering the posture of reverential devotion as uneasy as possible he read many prayers of the catholic church and chanted in a low but earnest voice three of the penitential psalms these last he intermixed with sighs and tears and convulsive throbs which bore witness how deeply he felt the divine poetry which he recited the Scottish knight assisted with profound sincerity at these acts of devotion. His opinion of his host beginning, in the meantime, to be so much changed, that he doubted whether, from the severity of his penance and the ardour of his prayers, he ought not to regard him as a saint. And when they arose from the ground, he stood with reverence before him, as a pupil before an honoured master. The hermit was, on his side, silent and abstracted for the space of a few minutes look into yonder recesses my son he said pointing to the farther corner of the cell there thou wilt found a veil bring it hither the knight obeyed and in a small aperture cut out of the wall and secured with a door of wicker he found the veil inquired for when he brought it to the light he discovered that it was torn and soiled in some place with some dark substance the anchorite looked at it with a deep but smothered emotion and ere he could speak to the scottish knight was compelled to vent his feelings in a convulsive groan thou art now about to look upon the richest treasure that the earth possesses he at length said woe is me that my eyes are unworthy to be lifted towards it alas I am but the vile and despised sign, which points out to the wearied traveller a harbour of rest and security, but must itself remain for ever without doors. In vain have I fled to the very depths of the rocks, and the very bosom of the thirsty desert. Mine enemy hath found me, even he whom I have denied has pursued me to my fortress. He paused again for a moment, and turning to the Scottish knight said, in a firmer tone of voice, "'You bring me a greeting from Richard of England?' "'I come from the council of Christian princes,' said the knight. "'But the King of England being indisposed, "'I am not honoured with His Majesty's commands.' "'Your token?' demanded the recluse. "'Sir Kenneth hesitated. "'Former suspicions and the marks of insanity "'which the hermit had formerly exhibited rushed suddenly on his thoughts.' BUT HOW SUSPECT A MAN WHOSE MANNERS WERE SO SAINTLY? MY PASSWORD, HE SAID AT LENGTH, IS THIS. KING'S BEGGED OF A BEGGAR. IT IS RIGHT, SAID THE HERMIT WHILE HE PAUSED. I KNOW YOU WELL, BUT THE SENTINEL UPON HIS POST, AND MINE IS AN IMPORTANT ONE, CHALLENGES FRIEND AS WELL AS FOE. HE THEN MOVED FORWARD WITH THE LAMP. "'leading the way into the room which they had left. "'The Saracen lay on his couch, still fast asleep. "'The hermit paused by his side and looked down on him. "'He sleeps,' he said, in darkness, and must not be awakened. "'The attitude of the emir did indeed convey the idea of profound repose. "'One arm flung across his body, as he lay with his face half turned to the wall.' "'concealed, with its long and loose sleeve, "'the greater part of his face. "'But the high forehead was yet visible. "'Its nerves, which, during his waking hours, "'were so uncommonly active, were now motionless, "'as if the face had been composed of dark marble, "'and his long silken eyelashes "'closed over his piercing and hawk-like eyes. "'The open and relaxed hand and the deep, regular and soft breathing, all gave tokens of the most profound repose. The slumberer formed a singular group, along with the tall forms of the hermit in his shaggy dress of goatskins bearing the lamp, and the knight in his close leathern coat, the former with an austere expression of ascetic gloom, the latter with anxious curiosity, deeply impressed on his manly features. HE SLEEPS SOUNDLY, SAID THE HERMIT, IN THE SAME LOW TONE AS BEFORE. AND, REPEATING THE WORDS, THOUGH HE HAD CHANGED THE MEANING FROM THAT WHICH IS LITERAL TO A METAPHORICAL SENSE, HE SLEEPS IN DARKNESS, BUT THERE SHALL BE FOR HIM A DAYSPRING. O ELDERIM, THY WALKING THOUGHTS ARE YET AS VAIN AND WILD AS THOSE WHICH ARE WHEELING THEIR GIDDY DANCE THROUGH THY SLEEPING BRAIN. BUT THE TRUMPET SHALL BE HEARD, and the dream shall be dissolved so saying and making the knight a sign to follow him the hermit went towards the altar and passing behind it pressed a spring which opening without a noise showed a small iron door wrought in the side of the cavern so as to be almost imperceptible unless upon the most severe scrutiny the hermit ere he ventured fully to open the drawer dropped some oil on the hinges which the lamp supplied a small staircase hewn in the rock was discovered when the iron door was at length completely opened take the veil which i hold said the hermit in a melancholy tone and blind mine eyes for i may not look on the treasure which thou art presently to behold without sin and presumption without reply the knight hastily muffled the recluse's head in the veil and the latter began to ascend the staircase as one too much accustomed to the way to require the use of light while at the same time he held the lamp to the scot who followed him for many steps up the narrow ascent at length they rested in a small vault of irregular form in one nook of which the staircase terminated while in another corner a corresponding stair was seen to continue the ascent. In a third angle was a gothic door, very rudely ornamented, with the usual attributes of clustered columns and carving, and defined by a wicket, strongly guarded with iron, and studded with large nails. To this last point the hermit directed his steps, which seemed to falter as he approached it. "'Put off thy shoes.' he said to his attendant the ground on which thou standest is holy banish from thy innermost heart each profane and carnal thought for to harbour such while in this place were a deadly impiety the knight laid aside his shoes as he was commanded and the hermit stood in the meanwhile as if communing with his soul in secret prayer and when he again moved commanded the knight to knock at the wicket three times he did so The door opened spontaneously, at least Sir Kenneth beheld no one, and his senses were at once assembled by a stream of the purest light, and by a strong and almost oppressive sense of the richest perfumes. He stepped two or three paces back, and it was the space of a minute ere he recovered the dazzling and overpowering effects of the sudden change from darkness to light when he entered the apartment in which this brilliant lustre was displayed he perceived that the light proceeded from a combination of silver lamps fed with the purest oil and sending forth the richest odours hanging by a silver chain from the roof of a small gothic chapel hewn like most part of the hermit's singular mansion out of the sound and solid rock but whereas in every other place which sir kenneth had seen The labor employed upon the rock had been of the simplest and coarsest description it had in this chapel employed the invention and the chisels of the most able architects the groined roofs rose from six columns on each side carved with the rarest skill and the manner in which the crossings of the concave arches were bound together as it were with appropriate ornaments were all in the finest tone of the architecture of the age Corresponding to the line of pillars, there were on each side six richly wrought niches, each of which contained the image of one of the twelve apostles. At the upper and eastern end of the chapel stood the altar, behind which a very rich curtain of Persian silk, embroidered with gold, covered a recess, containing, unquestionably, some image or relic of no ordinary sanctity, in honour of which this singular piece of worship had been erected. Under the persuasion that this must be the case, the knight advanced to the shrine, and, kneeling down before it, repeated his devotions with fervorency, during which his attention was disturbed by the curtain being suddenly raised, or rather pulled aside, how or by whom he saw not. But in the niche which was thus disclosed, he beheld a cabinet of silver and ebony with a double folding door the whole formed into the miniature resemblance of a gothic church as he gazed with anxious curiosity on the shrine the two folding doors also flew open discovering a large piece of wood on which were blazoned the words vera cruz at the same time a choir of female voices sung gloria Patri." the instant the strain had ceased the shrine was closed and the curtain again drawn and the knight who knelt at the altar might now continue his devotions undisturbed in honour of the holy relic which had been just disclosed to his view he did this under the profound impression of one who had witnessed with his own eyes an awful evidence of the truth of his religion and it was some time ere concluding his orisons he arose, and ventured to look around him for the hermit, who had guided him to this sacred and mysterious spot. He beheld him, his head still muffled in the veil which he had himself wrapped around it, crouching like a rated hound upon the threshold of the chapel. But, apparently, without venturing to cross it, the holiest reverence, the most penitential remorse, was expressed by his posture, which seemed that of a man borne down and crushed to the earth by the burden of his inward feelings it seemed to the scot that only the sense of the deepest penitence remorse and humiliation could have thus prostrated a frame so strong and a spirit so fiery he approached him as if to speak but the recluse anticipated his purpose murmuring in stifled tones from beneath the fold in which his head was muffled and which sounded like a voice proceeding from the cerements of a corpse. Abide, abide, happy that thou mayest, the vision is not yet ended. So saying, he reared himself from the ground, drew back from the threshold on which he had hitherto lain prostrate, and closed the door of the chapel, which, secured by a spring bolt within, the snap of which resounded through the place, appeared so much like a part of the living rock from which the cavern was hewn that kenneth could hardly discern where the aperture had been he was now alone in the lighted chapel which contained the relic to which he had lately rendered his homage without other arms than his dagger or other companion than his pious thoughts and dauntless courage uncertain what was next to happen but he resolved to abide the course of events sir kenneth paced the solitary chapel till about the time of the earliest cock crowing at this dead season when night and morning meet together he heard but from what quarter he could not discover the sound of such a small silver bell as it rang at the elevation of the host in the ceremony or sacrifice as it has been called of the mass the hour and the place rendered the sound fearfully solemn and bold as he was The knight withdrew himself into the farther nook of the chapel, at the end opposite to the altar, in order to observe, without interruption, the consequences of this unexpected signal. He did not wait long ere the silken curtain was again withdrawn, and the relic again presented to his view. As he sunk reverentially on his knee, he heard the sound of the lords, or earliest office of the Catholic Church, sung by female voices which united together in the performance as they had done in the former service the knight was soon aware that the voices were no longer stationary in the distance but approached the chapel and became louder when a door imperceptible when closed like that by which he had himself entered opened on the other side of the vault and gave the tones of the choir more room to swell along the ribbed arches of the roof the knight fixed his eyes on the opening with breathless anxiety and continuing to kneel in the attitude of devotion which the place and scene required expected the consequence of these preparations a procession appeared about to issue from the door first four beautiful boys whose arms necks and legs were bare showing the bronze complexion of the east and contrasting with the snow white tunics which they wore entered the chapel by two and two the first pair bore censers which they swung from side to side adding double fragrance to the odours with which the chapel was already impregnated the second pair scattered flowers after these followed in due and majestic order the females who composed the choir six who from their black scapularies and black veils over their white garments appeared to be professed nuns in the order of mount carmel and as many whose veils being white argued them to be novices or occasional inhabitants in the cloister who were not as yet bound to it by vows the former held in their hands large rosaries while the younger and lighter figures who followed carried each a chaplet of red and white roses they moved in procession around the chapel without appearing to take the slightest notice of Kenneth, although passing so near him that their robes almost touched him, while they continued to sing. The knight doubted not that he was in one of those cloisters where the noble Christian maidens had formerly openly devoted themselves to the services of the church. Most of them had been suppressed, since the Mohammedans had reconquered Palestine, but many purchasing connivance by presents or receiving it from the clemency or contempt of the victors still continued to observe in private the ritual to which their vows had consecrated them yet though kenneth knew this to be the case the solemnity of the place and hour the surprise at the sudden appearance of these votaresses and the visionary manner in which they moved past him had such influence on his imagination that he could scarce conceive that the fair procession which he beheld was formed of creatures of this world so much did they resemble a choir of supernatural beings rendering homage to the universal object of adoration such was the knight's first idea as the procession passed him scarce moving save just sufficiently to continue their progress so that seen by the shadowy and religious light which the lamps shed through the clouds of incense which darkened the apartment, they appeared rather to glide than to walk. But as a second time, in surrounding the chapel, they passed the spot on which he kneeled, one of the white stalled maidens, as she glided by him, detached from the chaplet which she covered a rosebud, which she dropped from her fingers, perhaps unconsciously, on the foot of Sir Kenneth. The night started as if a dart had suddenly struck his person, for, when the mind is wound up to a high pitch of feeling and expectation, the slightest incident, if unexpected, gives fire to the train which imagination has already laid. But he suppressed his emotion, recollecting how easily an incident so indifferent might have happened, and that it was only the uniform monotony of the movement of the choristers which made the incident in the slightest degree remarkable. Still, while the procession, for the third time, surrounded the chapel, the thoughts and the eyes of Kenneth followed exclusively the one among the novices who had dropped the rosebud. Her step, her face, her form, were so completely assimilated to the rest of the choristers that it was impossible to perceive the least marks of individuality and yet kenneth's heart throbbed like a bird that would burst from its cage as if to assure him by its sympathetic suggestions that the female who held the right file on the second rank of the novices was dearer to him not only than all the rest that were present but than the whole sex besides the romantic passion of love as it was cherished and indeed enjoined by the rules of chivalry associated well with the no less romantic feelings of devotion and they might be said much more to enhance than to counteract each other it was therefore with a glow of expectation that at something even of a religious character that sir kenneth his sensations thrilling from his heart to the ends of his fingers expected some second sign of the presence of one who he strongly fancied had already bestowed on him the first Short as the space was during which the procession again completed a third preambulation of the chapel, it seemed an eternity to Kenneth. At length, the form which he had watched with such devoted attention drew nigh. There was no difference betwixt that shrouded figure and the others, with whom it moved in concert and in unison, until, just as she passed for the third time the kneeling crusader, a part of a little and well-proportioned hand, so beautifully formed as to give the highest idea of the perfect proportions of the form to which it belonged, stole through the folds of the gauze, like a moonbeam through the fleecy cloud of a summer night, and again a rosebud lay at the feet of the knight of the leopard. This second intimation could not be accidental. It could not be fortuitous the resemblance of that half-seen but beautiful female hand with one which his lips had once touched and while they touched it had internally sworn allegiance to the lovely owner had further proof been wanting there was the glimmer of that matchless ruby ring on that snow-white finger whose invaluable worth kenneth would yet have prized less than the slightest sign which that finger could have made and veiled too as she was he might see, by chance or by favor, a stray curl of that dark tresses, each hair of which was dearer to him a hundred times than a chain of massive gold. It was the lady of his love, but that she should be here, in the savage and sequestered desert, among vestals who rendered themselves habitants of wilds and of caverns, that they might perform in secret those Christian rites which they dared not assist in openly that this should be so in truth and in reality seemed too incredible it must be a dream a delusive trance of the imagination while these thoughts passed through the mind of kenneth the same passage by which the procession had entered the chapel received them on their return the young sacristans the sable nuns vanished successively through the open door at length she from whom he had received this double intimation passed also yet in passing turned her head slightly indeed but perceptibly towards the place where he remained fixed as an image he marked the last wave of her veil it was gone and a darkness sunk upon his soul scarce less palpable than that which almost immediately enveloped his external sense for the last chorister had no sooner crossed the threshold of the door than it shut with a loud sound and at the same instant the voices of the choir were silent the lights of the chapel were at once extinguished and sir kenneth remained solitary and in total darkness but to kenneth solitude and darkness and the uncertainty of his mysterious situation were as nothing he thought not of them cared not for them cared for naught in the world, save the fitting vision which had just glided past him, and the tokens of her favour which she had bestowed. To grope on the floor for the buds which she had dropped, to press them to his lips, to his bosom, now alternately, now together, to rivet his lips to the cold stones on which, as near as he could judge, she had so lately stepped, to play all the extravagances which strong affection suggests, and vindicates to those who yield themselves up to it, were but the tokens of passionate love common to all ages. But it was peculiar to the times of chivalry, that, in his wildest rapture, the knight imagined of no attempt to follow, or to trace the object of such romantic attachment, that he thought of her as a deity, who having deigned to show herself for an instant to her devoted worshipper had again returned to the darkness of her sanctuary or as an influential planet which having darted in some auspicious minute one favourable ray wrapped itself again in its veil of mist the motions of the lady of his love were to him those of a superior being who was to move without watch or control rejoice him by her appearance or depress him by her absence, animate him by her kindness, or drive him to despair by her cruelty, all at her own free will, and without other importunity or remonstrance than that expressed by the most devoted services of the heart and sword of the champion, whose sole object in life was to fulfil her commands, and by the splendour of his own achievements, to exalt her fame. Such were the rules of chivalry, and of the love which was its ruling principle. But Sir Kenneth's attachment was rendered romantic by other and still more peculiar circumstances. He had never even heard the sound of his lady's voice, though he had often beheld her beauty with rapture. She moved in a circle which his rank of knighthood permitted him indeed to approach, but not to mingle with and highly as he stood distinguished for warlike skill and enterprise. Still, the poor Scottish soldier was compelled to worship his divinity at a distance almost as great as divides the Persian from the sun which he adores. But when was the pride of a woman too lofty to overlook the passionate devotion of a lover, however inferior in degree? Her eye had been on him in the tournament. Her ear had heard his praises, In the report of the battles which were daily fought and while count duke and lord contended for her grace it flowed unwillingly perhaps at first or even unconsciously towards the poor knight of the leopard who to support his rank had little besides his sword when she looked and when she listened the lady saw and heard enough to encourage her in a partiality which had at first crept on her unawares. If a knight's personal beauty was praised, even the most prudish dames of the military court of England would make an exception in favor of the Scottish Kenneth. And it oftentimes happened that, notwithstanding the very considerable largesses which princes and peers bestowed on the minstrels, an impartial spirit of independence would seize the poet, and the harp was swept to the heroism of one who had neither palfreys nor garments to bestow in the guerdon of his applause the moments when she listened to the praises of her lover became gradually more and more dear to the high-born edith relieving the flattery with which her ear was weary and presenting to her a subject of secret contemplation more worthy as he seemed by general report than those who surpassed him in rank and in the gifts of fortune As her attention became constantly, though cautiously, fixed on Sir Kenneth, she grew more and more convinced of his personal devotion to herself, and more and more certain in her mind that in Kenneth of Scotland she beheld the fated knight doomed to share with her through weal and woe. And the prospect looked gloomy and dangerous. The passionate attachment to which the poets of the age ascribed such universal dominion and which its manners and morals place nearly on the same rank with devotion itself. Let us not disguise the truth from our readers. When Edith became aware of the state of her own sentiments, chivalrous as were her sentiments, becoming a maiden not distant from the throne of England, gratified as her pride must have been, with the mute, though unceasing, homage rendered to her by the knight whom she had distinguished. There were moments when the feelings of the woman— loving and beloved murmured against the restraints of state and form by which she was surrounded and when she almost blamed the timidity of her lover who seemed resolved not to infringe them the etiquette to use a modern phrase of birth and rank had drawn around her a magic circle beyond which sir kenneth might indeed bow and gaze but within which he could no more pass than an evoked spirit can transgress the boundaries prescribed by the rod of a powerful enchanter the thought involuntary pressed on her that she herself must venture were it but the point of her fairy foot beyond the prescribed boundary if she ever hoped to give a lover so reserved and bashful an opportunity of so slight a favour as but to salute her shoe-tie there was an example THE NOTED PRESIDENT OF THE KING'S DAUGHTER OF HUNGARY, WHO THUS GENEROUSLY ENCOURAGED THE SQUIRE OF LOW DEGREE. AND EDITH, THOUGH OF KINGLY BLOOD, WAS NO KING'S DAUGHTER, ANY MORE THAN HER LOVER WAS OF LOW DEGREE. FORTUNE HAD PUT NO SUCH EXTREME BARRIER AND OBSTACLE TO THEIR AFFECTIONS. SOMETHING, HOWEVER, WITHIN THE MAIDEN'S BOSOM, THAT MODEST PRIDE WHICH THROWS FETTERS EVEN ON LOVE ITSELF, forbade her, notwithstanding the superiority of her condition, to make these advances, which, in every case, delicacy assigns to the other sex. Above all, Sir Kenneth was a knight so gentle and honourable, so highly accomplished, as her imagination at least suggested, together with the strictest feelings of what was due to himself and to her, that however constrained her attitude might be while receiving his adorations like the image of some deity who is neither supposed to feel nor to reply to the homage of its votaries still the idol feared that to step prematurely from a pedestal would be to degrade herself in the eyes of her devoted worshipper yet the devout adorer of an actual idol can even discover signs of approbation in the rigid "'and immovable features of a marble image. "'And it is no wonder that something, "'which could be as favourably interpreted, "'glanced from the bright eyes of the lovely Edith, "'whose beauty, indeed, "'consisted rather more in that very power of expression "'than an absolute regularity of contour "'or brilliancy of complexion. "'Some slight marks of distinction had escaped from her, notwithstanding her own jealous vigilance else how could sir kenneth have so readily and so undoubtedly recognized the lovely hand of which scarce two fingers were visible from under the veil or how could he have rested so thoroughly assured that the two flowers successively dropped on the spot were intended as a recognition on the part of his lady love by what train of observation by what secret signs, looks, or gestures, by what instinctive Freemasonry of love, this degree of intelligence came to subsist between Edith and her lover, we cannot attempt to trace. For we are old, and such slight vestiges of affection, quickly discovered by younger eyes, defy the power of ours. Enough that such affection did subsist between parties who had never even spoken to one another, though on the side of edith it was checked by a deep sense of the difficulties and dangers which must necessarily attend the further progress of their attachment and upon that of the knight by a thousand doubts and fears lest he had overestimated the slight tokens of the lady's notice varied as they necessarily were by long intervals of apparent coldness during which either the fear of exciting the observation of others, and thus drawing danger upon her lover, or that of sinking in his esteem by seeming too willing to be won, made her behave with indifference, and as if unobservant of his presence. This narrative, tedious perhaps, but which the story renders necessary, may serve to explain this state of intelligence, if it deserves so strong a name, betwixt the lovers, when Edith's unexpected appearance in the chapel produced so powerful an effect on the feelings of her knight. End of Chapter Four.